It's Wild Wild Pest, the deep dive podcast about the South's most notorious outlaws. Palmetto Pete and his posse were the nastiest cockroaches you could ever fear to meet. Nope. Trespassing, loitering, scaring innocent folk when they turned on the light. No thanks. And that's not to mention all the diseases the germ-ridden no-good nicks were known to spread. Oh no. Oh yes, but fear not. Terminix was on the case with all the skills, experience, and tools needed to outdraw the outlaws. Learn more at TrustTerminix.com. Impact of Influence, the Murdoch Family Murders. This is the unfolding story of a powerful South Carolina family, the mysterious deaths they are linked to, and our quest to bring you the truth. Hello, friend. As always, we are so grateful that you decided to spend time with us, especially considering how many Alec Murdoch podcasts are popping up. We were on this thing about two to three weeks after the murders happened back in June of 2021. Never had no, any idea. We were on it the week the murders happened. I looked it up. It was like June. Uh, we released our first, we were on it, but we didn't release it till June. Doesn't matter. It's like June 16th or something like that. We can start. Yeah, we started working on it. Okay. I'll say that. Yeah. Hello, friend. So grateful you're spending time with us. I'm Matt Harris, Seton Tucker with us, of course. And we are always so grateful. So many t- podcast to choose from talking about Alec Murdoch and that's cool no problem with that uh, we've been doing this podcast where well, we started getting it all together the week of the murders and then we've been doing it since June of 2021 and uh, it's, it's because of you so uh, thank you Murdoch podcast on Facebook MurdochPodcast.com, Matt Harris podcast at gmail.com and uh, this episode a little if it sounds a little odd, it's because we tried to schedule a guest in the middle of the trial, in the middle of me trying to take my kid to the doctor. And I go to the doctor's office, and for some strange reason, they don't have internet. So I grab my stuff. I'm an early, you know, an hour early for her appointment. So, but I thought I could use an office, maybe an empty room. So I grab my stuff and my kid, and we run to Panera and try to get to do the Zoom there. End up sitting outside of Panera for a while. My daughter says I look like I don't have a job or a life, and she's embarrassed. She's going, "Oh, Dad, you're sitting outside Panera." But anyway, we hooked it up. Seton was in your car, I think. Yeah, I ran out of the hearing a little bit before the lunch break to get on the Zoom, and I was trying to do the Zoom from my car. I was hooked up to my car stereo, which apparently does not provide good audio, so. I apologize. <laughs> but we're we're on the move and doing it as quickly as 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 we can. So um our guest is someone you had seen on some network television shows, a defense attorney who was talking about the Murdoch case. He decided to uh bring her on board, and that was a good move. Uh really interesting things to say. Her name is Sarah Azari. She is a criminal trial attorney in LA. She also uh, does a true crime show, Death by Fame, on the Investigation Discovery Network every Monday night at 9. And here is that uh, interview. Before we get even into the actual Murdoch thing, Sarah, I want to ask you this. A defense attorney, they are almost pariahs in some people's minds. Uh, Not mine, but I'm sure you hear it all the time, right? That we... (laughs) We've been doing this podcast for a couple of years, and uh, if we say anything remotely, it could be something doesn't even matter. Say something like, wow, the defense made a great point. You love numbers. 
You want all murderers to be free. So I want to see how you handle that. And I, I assume you're feeling that same kind of projection against you as well. I, I, yeah, absolutely. Um, we're usually disparaged. We're not appreciated. Sometimes our clients don't even appreciate it because everyone thinks they can walk. If they don't walk, then it's not a victory. Um, but but yes, we are the lesser than in the criminal justice system, even though I believe we do God's work. Um, I consider myself a soldier of the Constitution. I don't care if you did the bad deed or not. I care whether the government is overreaching or not. And um, I sleep just fine at night, even if I'm defending a guilty guy, because my job is not to get bad guys off. Again, my job is to make sure the government is not violating our constitutional protections. Um, And by the way, if you look at the statistics, there's a lot of good people, innocent people that are convicted and put behind bars for years and years until we get to them and can get them out then there are people that are guilty of sin and get to walk. So I sleep fine. I sleep fine. And I have never seen or been under so much attack. Um, You know, I've also, for the last 15 years, been a media personality. I've done a lot of, like you said, crime shows. I've been on various networks from CNN to everything else. Um, Unpacking, you know, criminal trials, criminal issues, white collar, true crime, all of it. I have never, I mean, even, even, I even wrote a book about a certain president that should have been indicted. Um, And, you know, we're talking about political division in this country, and I have never been under the attack that I have uh, experienced during the course of the Murdoch trial on Twitter. I mean, I I don't know who these people are, but I just block them at this point. So I, I, by the way, I've never used the block feature as much either. Um, I pretty much use it all day long now. Nobody's nobody's coming to me with subs. Well, no, no, no. Some people are, and they don't agree with me, but they disagree decently. And I love that. You know, we don't have to, you know, this verdict could be anything, right? So I don't, I don't, I don't at all um I turn my turn my attention away from that. But there are people that sh- that have decided that this man killed his wife and son based on podcasts, based on I don't know what. Uh and they don't like hearing my analysis. And then they turn it, turn it into, oh, the defense must have paid you. Oh, you might. and I'm just like, I like I've never been to South Carolina. I don't know Alec Murdoch. I don't care either way, you know. Um, but I do care about how this case was built and how this case is playing out at trial. And I'm very much vested in it. I was since the murders happened. I've been following it closely. And um, I'm I'm astonished at some of the things I see. We have really seen very strong viewpoints in this case, especially on the guilty side. And I kind of think people are forgetting about presumption of innocence as one of our rights. Can you kind of go over this for us? You're presumed to be innocent no matter how bad the evidence is (laughs) Um, until you believe as a juror uh, unanimously with the other jurors that the prosecution has met its burden of proof, the highest standard of proof we have in our criminal, in our justice system, period, uh, proof beyond a reasonable doubt. All jurors have to agree to that. If you don't take the stand, you, you are just as much presumed innocent as anyone who does take the stand. It's a, it's a huge burden and it's a huge presumption. Um, and unfortunately, you know, we, we have, we're in an era with social media 
And just the landscape of media is so vast that the power of media is greater in high profile cases like this, because the the, the opinion that's formed even before the, ga- the, the guy gets his day in court is so difficult to change. If you talk to jury consultants, um, you know, some of them I use on my own cases, you know, they talk about the incredible danger of this because when somebody forms an opinion based on misinformation or facts that are not facts, like you don't see them in the trial because they are not facts to consider. Once that opinion is formed, even when you teach them the real facts and that what they learned was misinformation, it's very hard to undo those opinions. Actually, during jury selection, one of the questions that was asked was whether you had formed an opinion as to guilt or innocence. And many of the jurors, probably about a third, had. And they were then asked, if you have formed this opinion, were you able to set it aside and listen to the testimony and form a new opinion? And not many were. And some of them may be, some people don't want to serve on a jury. And sometimes they say what they think they need to say to get out of it. And so, you know, so some of it may not be genuine, but Hey, I'd rather not take the risk that that person really means what they're saying and that they can't set aside what they've learned over two years. Almost. It's been two years of this guy did it. Nobody else, but this guy. Um, and, and, and again, I think another reminder we need to remember is that it's taking a long time just because we've had a trial within a trial. We had a fraud essentially a fraud trial within a murder trial. And we're like week five and we still haven't heard from the defense, but we're, we're still not at the defense yet. And I think it's going to be incredibly interesting in form and substance because suddenly these, these jurors are going to be like, okay, that's why I'm here. I'm here to hear about evidence of murder, not, not theft, not embezzlement, not, not fraud. Right. Um, now, now I'm getting to the crux of what I need to know And it's going to be far more clear and far more educational than the last four or five weeks, because this defense is putting up, they have probably one of some of the best experts you could get in the country. They're putting up a reenactment of the crime scene of, you know, picking up two guns, one person and doing all the things that the prosecution wants the jury to believe, hosing off, cleaning up, driving back to Moselle, getting back in the car, driving, put it, turning off the lights or whatever he did allegedly, and then going to his mom's, you know, the, the movement of the car showing him going to the, the mom or the non-parked status of the car showing that he's going to his mom. It's going to be huge layers of doubt when they see, jurors appreciate demonstratives. They appreciate a reenactment, you know, they appreciate going to Moselle, which is going to happen. Also, there's going to be a field trip in this case, you know, the ability to maybe turn on their cell phones and see whether they get cell cell service there, you know, that sort of educational component that will come with the defense case is very valuable. And I imagine it's going to just really highlight the layers of doubt that we have already sort of spotted in in the prosecution's case. Well, the big one that the prosecution has to make, I know the motive is they don't have to do motive in South Carolina, I get that. But you got to convince 12 people that this guy brutally killed his wife and son, who, by even the prosecution's testimony, their witnesses, complete love and all this. this yes. great. So how, it will the jury be able to shake that he was this monster financial guy? That doesn't mean you're a monster killer guy. 
That's right. Monsters are not all the same. I, I represent different types of monsters. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's a different profile. It's a different profile. And you can be a soulless thief and be a loving uh, family guy who would never want harm done to his you know wife or son. And I think, it, you know, yeah. Yesterday or was it yesterday? I'm running. I'm. I'm. It's becoming a big blur because <laughs> all the days are running into each other. But not too long ago, there was a curious break in the afternoon, and I wasn't sure why there was a break because the day was almost over. And I asked some people I know on the ground who were in the courtroom, and they said the jurors, a handful of jurors, had broken down. They they could not keep composed because they were watching the video of the bodies during the pathologist's testimony. And I thought how good that is for the defense because these jurors are not going to be able to fathom that a, a father, um, I mean, even, even a husband, now we know he didn't have any tiff with uh, Maggie. You know, we, we've not heard anything about a bad marriage. It was a regular marriage, you know? So, but more so even with Paul, it, it's going to be more just implausible to them that somebody would do this to their own blood. Okay, let's talk about this 844 video. This seems to be the most damning piece of evidence against Alec because it's been brought up in now, I think, three videos with law enforcement where he hasn't mentioned that he was at the kennels with Maggie or Paul. In fact, he denies it. Is it possible for the defense to combat this evidence? First of all, you need to maintain credibility. You need to, you cannot deny that it's him at the kennels at 844. I mean, look, sure, I would look into challenging the timestamp on that video. Maybe that timestamp isn't correct. Or maybe there's at least some doubt as to the accuracy of that timestamp. But let's just say it is 844. He cannot deny that it was him with Maggie and Paul at the kennels. I don't think this defense uh, team is going to deny his presence with them before they were murdered. Maybe give or take a few minutes if the time is not accurate. But it's it's going to be about why somebody would deny being there. First couple of encounters, understandably, he's really distraught. He has no notion what day or time it is. That's a valid explanation. In August, when he's sitting there for hours speaking to Owens, which is the lead investigator, which is the video that we're watching today, this morning, um, that's a tougher one because it's two months after the murders. You know, he's had time to collect himself, collect his thoughts, really think about this. He's trying to figure out who killed his family. You know, there's a lot of opportunity to reflect and come up with uh, the the timestamps that matter, right? So that that's from the prosecution side, that's the argument. From the defense side, he needs to possibly, I mean, listen, I, I, I don't want to say what his argument should be, but there is plausibility to the argument that this guy had so many skeletons in his closet. He was being looked at. He was being scrutinized. It was also obvious. He didn't have to be charged to know that he's a suspect in this case. You don't need to be formally told that you are the suspect in this case. There was always, always a suspicion that he could very well be a suspect in this case, including as early as August, 2021. So with that in mind, it is absolutely plausible that you don't want to put further scrutiny and spotlight on yourself and don't want to place yourself close to the victims so close in time. 
And then when you compare that or juxtapose that with the defense, when they reenact the crime scene and show the utter implausibility of one person being able to do a long, you know, litany of things in a matter of, I don't know, it's about 15 to 20 minutes. That's doubt. That's doubt. And you only need one person to believe that they haven't proven their case beyond a reasonable doubt. I don't know, man. Listen, I've never been to South Carolina and those people that attack me are always saying, you're not from here. You know it. I mean, even on Mars, I, I just, I think one person in this kind of case with these kinds of facts is not a lot to hang this jury, you know? So do you think he needs to take the stand? I do. I think all of what I've seen that requires explanation, including muscling the witnesses about, you know, how long he was at his mom's, about, you know, uh, his his shirt or whatnot. Those are things, of course, that as lawyers can explain an argument. But I think he makes a good witness. I think even though he's painted as a bullshit artist uh, by the prosecution, as a thief, as a con artist, um, and they're, of course, going to say, you can't believe him because he lies, right? He lied to the police about being at the kennels. How can you believe what this man is saying to you under oath on the stand? They're going to argue that till they're blue in the face. But I think there is a power in him. And I believe, I also have spoken to his defense lawyers who know him very well. I believe he makes a good witness. Number one, remember, he has no criminal convictions. He has all these charges pending. These are all allegations. These have not been proven beyond a reasonable doubt that he committed all these frauds. He's going to have to admit some of these that came in, but he does not have a criminal conviction. Unlike, for example, Cousin Eddie, if he were to ever testify in this trial, right? So in that respect, his credibility is fine. In his performance, I think he's going to buy a lot of sympathy from this jury, no matter how big a thief of a monster he is. When he breaks down, when he gets angry at the prosecutor, all going to make an impact on this jury and what he says during in between his sobbing. Okay. Jurors are not stupid. Jurors are human beings. They all have experiences. You know, maybe they haven't stolen, maybe they haven't killed, but I, I would imagine they haven't. That's why they're on this jury. But um, but they know people, they have experiences in life, you know, and on the stand, I think they're gonna see that he was a messed up person, that he was a thief, that he's wronged a lot of people, and he needs to tell them that. That's the first thing I said this on CNN yesterday. I said, my client, Alec Murdoch, would need to take the stand, look the jury in the eye and first say what a horrible monster he's been and why maybe if there's a reason, uh, you know, he, he went south in life and then immediately say, I did not kill Maggie and Paul. Like that's the first order of business that is going to go a long way in this case. Well, what about this missing clothing? You know, we we know there was this video from earlier the day with Paul and Alec riding around and he's wearing different clothing. And we heard from a housekeeper who testified that she believes that he was attempting to get her to say there were other clothing. What what do they do with that? So again, his muscling of witnesses also have to be explained, but I actually think the change of clothing helped him. Now we know that given the various items of clothing and descriptions of what he was wearing earlier to work and then later in the Snapchat and then after the murders, 
we see multiple changes of clothes. This is summer in South Carolina and low country. It's hot. It's humid. It's not unusual for somebody to change multiple times. And it's actually, given that he's changed more than once, helps the defense because he didn't just change out of bloody uh, murder garb and become Mr. Clean. And let me tell you something else about this Mr. Clean theory that that the state has adopted. This is new. They knew what he was wearing on that Snapchat because they had the Snapchat a month after the murders like in July of 2021, not not later when they got into Paul's phone. I, I believe they got it from Snapchat or something or from a friend that he had sent it to, I believe. So they had the Snapchat video. They knew he was wearing a blue shirt and khakis and loafers on that Snapchat video. They never cared to collect his clothing because they didn't believe that that's what he was wearing. They believed that the murder garb was the T-shirt and the shorts that they they made contact with him in, mm-hmm. right? It's only when they lost the blood and, and blood spatter theory because they destroyed the T-shirt and dyed it blue is they said, oh, we got to come up with Mr. Clean. We need Mr. Clean. We need a change of clothes. He must have been wearing that other thing. And so where's the blue shirt? Well, where's the blue shirt? Where's the blood? Where's the blood spatter? Where's the DNA? What is the GSR mean? I mean, where's all of this? Where is your evidence? So the blue shirt, excuse me, why did you not collect it if if you needed it, right? That's where the blue shirt is. The guy was like, he left Moselle after the slaughtering, right? After his family came in the, the next day, he moved out. He's not been there. So he has had clothes in his car. He has been to various homes. I mean, that's on them to go find the blue shirt. If they if they really wanted the blue shirt, they certainly had opportunity to ask for it and search for it. They didn't because they thought the T-shirt was what he was wearing. Yeah, that's a fair point. It's It's not the defense's job to get the evidence, but I don't know that they knew about the other clothing until after. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. This has been awesome. You have been very informative. It's great to uh, have someone with a national perspective, not just South Carolina, to kind of come in and view this from where everyone outside of South Carolina is looking at it. And I I appreciate that open-mindedness. I think it matters. You know, I am based in Los Angeles, but I have had criminal cases, you know, I've been doing this almost 20 years across the nation. I haven't been, haven't done a criminal trial in South Carolina, but I have been in all kinds of conservative jurisdictions with all kinds of wild card type of, you know, sets of rules and juries and all that. And so um, I really think, you know, I've never taken myself to be or presented myself to be the the pro on South Carolina jury analysis or anything like that. I don't know the first thing about it. In fact, if I do have a case that's outside of Los Angeles, I usually bring in local counsel outside of California, I should say. I bring in local counsel for those reasons. But my expertise and I hope the people that need to hear it do hear it. I don't know if they subscribe to your podcast per se, but my expertise is based on my experience doing criminal procedure in a courtroom. You know, it is not because I'm a pro on, you know, South Carolina law or like the juries down there, or demographics down there. And I've never presented myself in that capacity. So people need to put put it in context, you know? 
Well, we will. Sh- we shall see how this all plays out. And I really appreciate you coming on. Appreciate you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, as you can see, uh, I had to dash out and uh, Seton handled it and, and well. And I, I love hearing from attorneys, whether they be on the defense or whether they be on the prosecution, because they have very interesting input. And it, it rang so true with us how it was crazy to me that she said all the trials she's been involved with all these years and the Murdoch one is where she's getting the most heat for saying anything positive about the defense. It's crazy to me, right? Yeah, it really, that, that struck me. I was like, this is our first true crime podcast. And we, we thought maybe this was the norm, but maybe not. Maybe not. So uh, again, we are grateful you hung out with us and we hope you'll check out the Murdoch podcast, Facebook page and make comments and also the Matt Harris podcast at gmail.com. Let me fire one of those away real quick. I have a get one of these emails to you. This is from John. He uh, says, if Alec is the murderer, then why does he take Maggie's phone and not Paul's? Surely he would be aware that he would be placed at the scene by Paul's video. So why leave it there as evidence? Thanks for the great job you guys are doing, John and Orlando. Well, Alec did not know the video exists. I don't, I'm not sure anybody knew the video existed because of testimony today, right, Seton? No, it does not look like Paul's phone was unlocked and no one knew about this video until 2022. March, now, March. Right. But Alec said that uh, the kid had told him that he heard him on the phone, like in the background near the kennels. So the word was out there, but Alec was still digging his heels in that he was never there. Yeah, we just have to remember that the video, the 844 video from Paul's phone was never actually sent. Exactly. All right. That is a wrap. And we really appreciate Sarah Zari taking her time out to chat with us. Love to have her on again at some point, especially now that Alex's defense team is about to start their case. You can always reach out. Murdoch Podcast Facebook, Matt Harris Podcast at gmail.com. And we'll talk soon, friend. Ohio is a land of mystery. From missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies. From myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal.